we are starting a new sermon series, uh, next 13 weeks, Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got your Bible, find Matthew chapter 5. We're going to dig in. Matthew chapter 5. There's probably no words um, in history have been more read or more studied or preached than these words of Jesus we're about to, to study together. In fact, Jesus said at the very end of this letter, this, this Matthew gospel, um, he said this about himself, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never, ever pass away. And uh, so here we are now, 2,000 plus years later, and we are opening these very words of Jesus and... Uh, and looking at these forever words of Jesus. And it really doesn't matter um, how long you've been going to church. You could, this, you could have picked the Sunday of all Sundays in the world to, to come into a church. And you, you might know absolutely nothing about, about what we do or, or what this place is all about. But my guess is almost everybody everywhere has heard parts or pieces of this sermon that we are going to look at. This Sermon on the Mount. In fact, let me try this out on you. Tell me if you haven't heard some of these things. In, in these next few chapters, some of the most famous sayings of Jesus are, are, are captured for us. In fact, we find in chapter five, blessed are the pure in heart for they'll see God. A lot of people know that. My, my guess, you've heard this. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, offer him the other also, right? Um, no one can serve two masters. He will either serve God or he will serve his money. Very popular sayings. This is probably one of the ones that everybody likes to use, and I don't care who you are or what you believe. This is very helpful. Do not judge, uh, right? Um, and then it goes on to talk about why, why deal with a speck in your brother's eye when there is a redwood forest in your own, okay? And everyone loves that because that's a helpful tool. Put in your toolbox, and if anybody ever comes after you, you pull out the don't judge thing, and we, we like that, Okay. Jesus says in this very sermon, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, right? Knock and the door will be opened to you. Whatever you want others to do to you, treat them also. Very famous particular passage and probably more popular and more familiar than any of them is when Jesus teaches us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Every football game I've ever watched, there's a bunch of guys standing around praying this. Every concert I watch them, they pray this. This is the very popular sayings of Jesus. And so... You might not even know where these sayings come from, but almost everyone, almost everywhere knows parts and pieces of what Jesus says in these next handful of chapters. And Jesus was right. His words will not ever pass away, okay? And it's really, to be honest, it, it's astonishing. Think about it for a second. A carpenter's son, born out of wedlock, as poor, as poor as you could possibly be from a nowhere town called Nazareth. And here we are now, some thousands of years later, reading, most of us, many of us, believing uh, that the kingdom, salvation is found in these words. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Now, I know some people could write that off, and I, I get it. They could say, well, no, that is, that's just simply, you know, decent truth and 2,000 years of indoctrination. Clearly, that's why it's out there. And I suppose there's a little bit of, of truth in that. But there's something way bigger going on in having these words of Jesus last forever and ever and ever. And that is this. They last because they're true, okay? And they last because... Um, they have power, and they last because someone who is truth and power spoke them. That's, that's why they last. 
These aren't just carefully, cleverly thought through phrases that are pithy and people can't forget them. These come because they're absolutely essential truth from the one who defines truth. So I guess there's a really good way for, uh, if you want to capture what this Sermon on the Mount is all about, it's really about that. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus and his authority. That's what this sermon is about. And and therefore, if if he is who he says he is, with the authority that he declares himself to have, then that means something about our lives, right? There has to be a so what, therefore, right behind what he says, because what he's calling for is submission. Clearly, anyone who could speak these words with the authority that Jesus did is declaring himself to be something special. The creator God of the universe, who holds it together by the word of his power, like spoke all of this into existence from nothing. That is, that is Jesus, and that's what he declares himself to be. So I suppose we could leave here today with two polar opposite responses. Many of us have already warmed up to the idea of Jesus being the one and only, and so we kind of go, okay, give me more, give me more, I like the story. But for Jesus to declare himself to be the exclusive point of the story is very offensive to some. So, so you could be here going, it's okay if you offer him as an option. But to say he's the only, well, then it gets too close to home. And I don't, I don't like that. I suppose, I, I, I suppose that some of you could be offended by Jesus' exclusive statements in this. And I suppose I'm okay with that, ultimately, if what I tell you is what Jesus said. I hope I don't offend you. But if you're offended by what Jesus declares, then um, so be it. So um, even though um, these are the words of the creator God of the universe, in my opinion, and I think in the scripture's opinion, even though they're very familiar to many people around the world, our world has spun them into something less than God's words. They are now helpful tips, possibly. You know, I like that don't judge thing, right? I like that. Um, Sayings to consider, like a list of ethical options. After all, there's 50 imperative commands in this one sermon alone. 50 things that Jesus says to do or not to do. So if you wanted a list of things to consider to add to your life, maybe this is the bucket to go glean from. And some people have treated it like, well, here's, here's the list, and so you pick and choose. Like, this feels good, and that doesn't feel good, and so we kind of work our way through it. I was uh, having lunch with, with Paul this week, uh, not, not the apostle, but Paul the pastor. And uh, he was telling me about his daughter who is doing what we all did growing up, figuring out a way to get out from eating what they put on your plate, you know, like either hide in the garbage can. I, I used to stuff peas under the edge of the plate, convinced my mom couldn't see them, you know, like I'm done, and uh, never worked out that much. But people, to be fair, treat the teachings of Jesus kind of like that. Man, I love that stuff about love, Jesus. Bring it. Give me. I love the love, but... When you say you hate divorce and you talk about remarriage in such rigid ways and we want freedom, I don't like that. That's coming up. You know that, right? I kind of like what you said about caring for the poor. Like if you want to really convict the American conscience, just talk about social activism. We're all over that. But if Jesus says, no, no, here, listen, you must be poor in spirit to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, wait a minute, are you kidding me? I'd rather serve hungry people, but to get to the place of deciding that I am bankrupt, I don't want that. We, we hear things like, uh, you, you said not to judge each other, that's a very helpful little tip to do, and I think everyone loves that one, but I don't want you to judge me, Jesus. 
I don't you want you to have to sift me and see me and know me and know my motives and my thoughts and my intentions. I have no interest in, in you getting that close to me. And here's, here's the reality. Jesus isn't giving us a moral list for the masses. This is not a, hey, everybody, take what you want. It's kind of like a fruit platter, you know. If you like watermelon, it's all yours. Um, that's not what he's doing here. Jesus is giving us the ethics of the kingdom, okay, for all who call him king. That draws it down a little bit, doesn't it? So, church, and by that I mean those of you who declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior, these are our words. These are the words of our life and living. This is what we're supposed to know. This is what we're supposed to do, and here's why. Because this is how the king lived, and we live like the king. These are not optional statements. These are not suggestions. These are imperatives from the king to the kingdom citizens. Go and live this way. This is who we are. And I'm certain we're going to bump into things that we have crossed the line on. I'm certain there are places that we have gone and built homes at. Like sin is where I live. I live on sin street. And I've decided to live the opposite way the king has told me to live. I'm certain we'll find some of those. I'm just suggesting to you, if Jesus is your hope, if he's your salvation, then hang in here for 13 weeks. And I dare you, I dare you to believe more what he says than how you feel. And I think when we get all said and done, I I think the intention of the scriptures now some 2,000 years later that Jesus says will last forever are these transformative words. These words that get inside and deal with my other affections and my other loves and the things that I thought I needed plus Jesus, he comes and he deals with us so precisely. And I think if we get in this, we're gonna find ourselves going, I, I, I had this beautiful little thing I loved. And Jesus is gonna go, well, that's, that's in the way of the kingdom. And I, I think that's good. So uh, you, me, everybody, we're all going through it together. But I just wanted to challenge you on this. This is the way of the king, okay? And Jesus is our king, and he is the truth. He spoke the truth. He has authority because he's God with authority. Isn't that what the people thought when he's all done with this sermon? Isn't that what they say of him? We are astonished. We've never heard anybody teach like this. Is Why? Because he teaches with such authority. Isn't that what Jesus said of himself? Um, at the very end of his life, just before he's leaving the earth, he has died, he has resurrected, he is instructing the disciples before he leaves to go and make disciples, and he says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he has the authority to come in here and address us and deal with what we think we need and what the version of it is to live in light of this gospel, this saving gospel. He can tell us that. So... Um, so before we go on, I guess, I guess it would be important to kind of stop, draw the line in the sand, and ask some questions before we start throwing information on ourselves, okay? I, I would like you, at least humor me, to, in your own mind, sort some of this out. Is Jesus your king? Pretty easy to say it. Is he your king? I don't care, I really don't care if you can say it just just barely. You know, the confession of the sinner is a whisper. You don't know much. You don't know how much you don't know, but you know you need. If you know you need, if you can say he's your king, then, then I, I, you need to get ready for this. These are 
true words. They're perfect words. They're eternal words. And Jesus has the authority to instruct us on the ethos of his kingdom. So that's what we're getting into. And by the way, your answer to those questions is absolutely critical because your eternal destiny is at stake. You can't pick and choose what of the instructions that you want to own or believe or obey. And you can't reject Jesus as king and have the kingdom of heaven. You can't know life eternal. You can't have your sins forgiven if you reject Jesus, the only one. You can't. Okay, and we're going to discover that. This is very simply a call out. This Sermon on the Mount is a call out. It's a call out to those who haven't given your life to Jesus to completely trust in him, to give your life to him, to come to him for forgiveness and cleansing because all of your sin is stacking up. You know that, right? He is holy and he is righteous and he measures us so. So he measures it based on his standard. And I, I've known a lot of great people in my life, but nobody, nobody has been holy. And here's what he requires, perfection. And he provides it in himself. He, the perfect one, gives you his perfection. By faith, you're clean and made right. And it comes by faith, only by faith, not by work, not by religion, not by other things. That's what this, this study should do for you. If you don't know Christ, you should lean into Jesus and you should find him winsome and beautiful and the savior of the world. If, if um, you are a Christian, then I know we're gonna get a little hot under the collar because there's stuff we don't do that he has said. And like I said before, there are places that we live and things that we call good that are really bad and bad that is really good and he's gonna deal with that. So all I want you to do is prepare yourself to set aside, pick and choose religion. Just get ready to lay it down. Say, Jesus, whatever you say in here, I wanna believe and I wanna do. By your strength, by your power, by the help of the Holy Spirit, I want to do that. And I believe it's a call out to all of us to know that Jesus is our ultimate joy and our ultimate satisfaction. So I know this about humankind because I participate. The endless pursuit of my heart is joy. Every minute of every day. The reason why I get up and run ultimately is because I hate to run. is because I think at the end of it there might be something good. Do you understand? The reason why I go to work, the reason why you go to work and do tedious things over and over again is because you think ultimately at the end, whatever you're doing it for is an ultimate joy. All of us do this. I'm just going to tell you right up front, I believe Jesus is what we long for. Every one of us. He's what we want. And so that's what this sermon will do for us. It will show the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his truth, power of the Spirit, change the Holy Spirit. So let's get ready for that. Here we are. We're going to kick it off. I'm running out of time already. Um, that was just the introductory parts to Sermon on the Mount. So we are going to unpack probably the most familiar part of this sermon, the Beatitudes. Beatitudes means blessing. It's the first 12 verses or, the, or verse 2 through verse 10 of this section. So let's read it. I'm going to say a quick prayer for me and for you, and then we'll see what uh, the Holy Spirit says. Here's what Jesus does. Verse 1, 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteous, righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would come right now in the power of the Holy Spirit and open these words up to our hearts. For those who don't know Jesus, I pray that you do the miracle of new life. I pray that they would believe and see the beauty of Christ and and, uh, confess him as Lord. For us, God, I just pray that we learn more about you and how you lived and how you uh, have empowered us to live. And I pray that we would see it as the beautiful thing you do. We pray in Christ's name, amen. If there is a word that best describes Jesus and how he's perceived at this very moment in Israel's history, I think the word, the word I'm choosing, I think a word that, that fits is the word blessing. Jesus is at the height of his popularity right now. Everything he does, people like. Now, that's not going to last, but at this point, it's, it's there. Back up to chapter 4, look at verse 23. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Look at verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. He is popular. No surprise. Because people like what he says because he speaks with authority and we've got an issue with Rome that's kind of occupying us and maybe he's the Messiah and every time he touches somebody, if they're blind, they see. If they're crippled, they walk. If their skin is leprous, they become clean. We like Jesus. We need more of Jesus and, and that's where he's at. If you and I lived back then during this time and you saw the amazing things that he did and heard the amazing things that he taught, we'd do exactly what these people are doing. We are following him. Everywhere he goes. Now he's out in the wilderness and he knows he needs to teach them, okay? And I know why we're sticking close to Jesus. Maybe I can get some. Fair? I've had this ache in my knee for the last 10 years and I just watched him heal Joe's leg and maybe this will turn out to be a good day for me. And, and people don't grow hungry around Jesus because he turns fish into multiplied fish and bread and more bread and he's just an amazing man. He makes wine out of water. I, I gotta be with Jesus, okay? Jesus at this point is all about blessing. But the people understand blessing from this much perspective. I can get some. It will be good for me. So in this wonderful moment where Jesus knows what they're thinking, and I can't blame them because I think the same way, like he's just throwing out good things for people. Jesus goes up on a mountain out in the wilderness to teach the multitudes. One is mountain has kind of a a prophetic picture to it. Uh, Leaders, rabbis, teachers would sit at mountains and people would stand and watch. Plus, you got kind of a natural way to speak to lots and lots of people. And he's on this mountain and Jesus begins to teach what real blessing is. In spite of what they came there for, in spite of why they're pursuing him and why he's popular, he begins to unpack true happiness and true blessing, okay? And that's what he starts out with in in verses three through six. He starts um, in the most shocking of ways. It is the polar opposite of the reasons why people are following him. 
He turns the whole world on its head. And this is what he says. By the way, the word blessed means happy. So if you're writing this down in your Bible, just write happy are those. That's what he means. Truly happy people are these people. And this is what he says right out of the box with these people coming after him. Happy are those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. Talk about flipping the world upside down, right? According to Jesus, the person who is truly blessed isn't the wise, isn't the powerful, isn't the rich, isn't the famous, isn't the funny, isn't the intelligent, right? It is not that person. According to Jesus, the person who's truly happy and truly blessed, get this, is poor and is sad and is lowly and is mistreated. Who wants that? Because that's what he says. You want happy? Here's how it comes. Nobody goes there for happiness but Jesus, okay? This is the narrow way that he's going to talk about in chapter 7. This is that small little way that leads to heaven that few find. That's what he's talking about here. This is the whole denying yourself and picking up your cross and following Jesus stuff, and he's starting to build a case for how the kingdom works. It works backwards to how we work. Let me give you an easy way to remember this, uh, this particular sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, or at least this section of the Beatitudes. Three particular thoughts, I think, generally in this section. One is blessings come through brokenness. Blessings have a, have a already and not yet aspect to it, and, and blessings come through selflessness, okay? Blessings or happiness come through brokenness. There's a now and later or, a, or already not yet component to it and a selflessness in it. Some of the writers that I uh, read this week have divided these eight Beatitudes up into two sections. One they would call the Beatitudes of Need. That would be verses three through six and verses seven through 10. They call it the Beatitudes of Action. Uh, that might help you. Use it if you want to. But these first four Beatitudes uh, of, of need, I guess, is Jesus making it absolutely crystal clear that true, listen, true happiness only exclusively comes through brokenness. Nobody sells that. I've never stayed up late and seen one infomercial that said that. Not one, okay? Jesus said that. Jesus says it in detail this way. Jesus says God's blessing, true happiness is yours if you're poor in spirit. That simply means spiritually bankrupt. You assess your life honestly and you compare yourself to God and you say, I don't match up. I look at my life and I don't merit his favor, which is the opposite of all religion in all of the world. You know that, right? Religion. I don't care what denomination or what title you have, religion has as its foundational teaching that you fix things, you adjust things, you become things, and your God, whatever God that is, will find favor in you. Christianity says God is holy and you can't climb a ladder to him. You can't fix your problems. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't pray enough. You can't raise good kids. You can't vote the right way. You are all messed up, okay? spiritually bankrupt, nothing to offer. And, and that's, I know what you're feeling, like, wait a minute, I've met some good people. This is not God looking at humanity and comparing us to each other. Clearly, if we look at each other, we go, well, he's a nicer guy than I am. By far, he thinks better than I do. He works harder than I do. He's more productive than I am. We can do that this way. But you turn the comparison this way, 
And it happens just like the Apostle Paul says, we all fall short, right? Nobody can merit God's favor. You have to recognize that. You have to realize that blessing comes through this kind of poverty, complete and utter recognition of your need. Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans that there is a problem that we've all sinned because no one's righteous and we don't have a fear of God and we don't seek after God. That's the problem. Sin is our problem and that we are all poor, we're all blind, we're all ignorant, we're all broken. To various degrees, we all are. There's not one person ever born, not your grandmother, however sweet she is, she's broken, okay? All of us are broken. Here's the picture. Picture the kingdom. A big giant door at the king's house. We are beggars outside the king's house going please let me in and here's why I'm here because I've heard you're merciful. Not because I deserve to be here, not because I look like I belong here. I'm a beggar and I need help. That's kingdom citizens. That's every believer. Everybody who has happiness, true joy that lasts forever are people who bang on the door and ask for what God gives. He gives mercy, which is different than what we deserve. Amen? Okay. We are running out of time. Um, here's the second aspect that Jesus says. Jesus said, God's blessing is yours. It's yours if you mourn. We like to mourn. We're good at mourning, maybe complaining. Um, this is not mourning over loss. Lost a loved one, as tragic as that is. This is not sadness over that. This isn't sadness over losing a job, however important or needed that job might be, or losing your health, or having to go through radiation or chemo treatments. It's not sadness over your plight in life. That is not what this morning is. This is a morning over your sin and sin in the world. This is feeling about sin the way the king feels about sin. That's what this morning is. It's grieving over all the things that are broken and twisted and not right in you and everywhere else, okay? Jesus says this as well, that God's blessing is yours, happiness is yours if you are meek. This is someone who is gentle and someone who is humble and someone who is small, takes a position of smallness and serving of other people. By the way, this should make total sense to you. This one is a natural automatic outflow if you get the first two. If you know your poor in spirit and if you mourn over your sin, guess what you become? Meek. <laughs> These people don't leave big footprints everywhere. They make small ones and they bless other people. They don't talk a lot. They don't talk about themselves a bunch. They're not the focus of everyone's attention. These people are just loving others in Jesus. Make sense? You're picturing this person and you should because that's what Jesus is trying to do for you. He's trying to paint us the picture of a person who's truly happy. Not this guy, but the guy who's totally cool, being loved by the Father, okay? Everybody knows that guy. I used to be that guy. Here's one more. Jesus says this blessing, this happiness is yours if you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, okay? It's interesting when he brings this up. My guess for an audience like that, it would mean so much more to us because they knew thirst and they knew hunger. I just had a bottle of water back there and there's more if I get thirsty. You understand? But people who have to, they're in the desert, they're at the mountain, they're probably thinking, man, I could use a snack, I'm really thirsty. And he says, you need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Like that. How many of us do that? 
If you understand what longing for those things looks like, it's like I long to be forgiven. That's one of the aspects, pardoned. A person who longs for forgiveness gets forgiveness. A person who longs for pardon, understanding what I just said a little bit ago, that we need a righteous covering. I need to be covered by Jesus. It's longing for that. It's longing for faith that comes through Christ alone by the work of the Spirit. We know what our sin deserves, but we come to Christ for what he gives exclusively, love and forgiveness. It's, it's more than just the pardon wanting to be forgiven because most people who are under the weight of their own decisions hate their life, hate their decisions, hate the regret, hate all that stuff, and we want to get out of that. We want our pardon, but this as, second aspect is directly connected to it. It's longing for sanctification, which is simply a desire to be like Jesus. Okay, it's not only going, forgive me, it's saying, I want to be like you. Make sense? So everyone in here who's a Christian, I know you prayed this prayer this week because you're still a sinner. Wherever you failed, you probably said, God, I blew it. I don't want to blow it. I want to be like Jesus. That's longing for righteousness. That's longing and thirsting for it. The other aspect of it, 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 to be honest, is longing for that righteousness to happen everywhere else, too. It's like looking at a broken world, watching TV and saying, that isn't right. God, would you do something about that? That's twisted. God, would you save that? God, over here, these people are hurting. Would you do something there? It's that longing, longing for God in everything. Make sense? That's that longing for and thirst for righteousness' sake, okay? Um. Let me just take the, the time because I think it's a poignant illustration. It's Jesus' illustration, so it's got power in it, unlike mine. So Jesus shares this illustration to make the very same point. And I know you know the illustration, so I don't want you to look it up. I want you to listen, okay, so that you get his point. Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, let me describe that if you're not familiar. A Pharisee would be like, he's the head pastor. He's the leader of the church. He was the religious of the religious. He was the focus of people's attentions, like, be like that guy. If you were like that guy, you were doing good. Pharisee, got him? Church guy. And the tax gatherer, that is not a noble profession. A tax collector was a traitor. He was your brother who decided to work for the occupying country named Rome, extort money from you, and give it to Rome, and then get fat off of your back, okay? He was alone, he was a loner, he just, it was all about money. You don't like, you don't like these guys, okay? So get the contrast. Pharisee and tax gatherer, this is the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy, the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, this guy, he's standing far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you this, that, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Have you heard this story before? Do you think Jesus is repetitive for a reason? We don't like this story because by flesh we are programmed to make ourselves acceptable and to not see ourselves as the puke tax collector that we are. 
But Jesus says, if you just call yourself what you are, if you admit who you are, you come and you get, you get lavished on. If you're in the corner going, man, I'm pretty special. Why can't these knuckleheads get it? When you have to go it alone. You have to take that personal righteousness and stand before the ultimate righteous judge and you will fall short. I don't want that, okay? Jesus doing the very same thing here in this story as in this section of the Beatitudes. No one gets into heaven or the kingdom of heaven unless he realizes his ultimate need for God. Now, let me take the next handful of minutes and finish uh, these last two thoughts. Um, Second aspect of this blessing is that there's a already not yet part of this. So let me show you the structure of how these sentences are written. You'll see it pretty clearly. The second word of every phrase, you see it? Blessed what? Are. You have a present tense verb there that just simply saying these blessings, these joys, these happinesses are yours now. Your forgiveness is yours now. Your joy is yours now, right? You can be a part of the kingdom now. All of it is now. But you see that there's also a uh, future aspect to it as well because ultimately, over and over again, second half of each sentence was for they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. There is a future aspect of this that every one of us in here should go, praise the Lord, there's something to come. Because here's what God's doing. As soon as you come to your senses and you trust in the king, he starts changing your life over the course of your living life. But there's a goal in mind. Holiness is coming. Transformation is coming. Dealing with this body of sin and death is coming. And all of it he's promised, okay? There is a future to gain, a heaven to, to, to love. Listen, listen to the, how the Apostle Paul describes this to the little young apostle named Timothy. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not only just to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a crown coming, church. That's where an amen goes, right there. I let that pregnant pause for you. Paul told the church in Philippi, see if you can say this, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Is there an amen there? Okay, John, describing our future in Revelation 21 makes this clear. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, I did. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain because the old stuff has passed away. There's something coming, right? There is a now and a later to all these blessings. This joy is ours now, but there's a little bit of delayed gratification there. We, we have to know that all these ultimate things will be experienced one, one day, not all right now. One last thought. Third aspect of this beatitude study, and that is that blessing comes through selflessness. That's what he says, right? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Do you, do you notice there that, that none of these beatitudes are about you? They're all about somebody else. They all have an arrow directly pointing to someone else or God, not you, right? 
They focus on self-denial. Happy are those who are merciful. People who forgive like they've been forgiven. Describe to me the mountain of your sin. If you could. And you have to include in there not just actions, but intentions. And not just intentions, but motives. And thoughts. The mountain's pretty unbearable, isn't it? It's ginormous. It's huge. Okay? People who understand the mountain that has been lifted off our shoulders by the forgiveness of Jesus cannot look at another sinner who is climbing this same journey and going, you know what? God might be able to forgive, but my standards are so much better than God. You owe me. Right? These people, kingdom people, the ethos of the kingdom is that we look at others and go, yeah, absolutely, I forgive you. I don't hold that against you. God could judge me. He doesn't through Christ. I forgive you. This person is a a happy person because he's pure in heart. People who love others without agenda. Ever meet one of these? They're very, very rare, okay? They're like those rabbits with antlers. You don't see many of these people out there who love others without agenda, okay? This is a a selfless love. There is no fear of man going on here. I just care about you. I'm not trying to be liked. I'm not trying to get you to care for me. I'm just doing it for you. Just pure love of God and others. He says, happy are the peacemakers, people who reconcile man to man and man to God. We tell them of the gospel and we fix relationships. That's what we do. Others focused. And he says the last particular thing is happy are the persecuted. This is really weird. But this is what he means. People are happy who are hated for declaring, loving, and living the exclusivity of Jesus alone by faith alone. The message is amazing. It's transformative. It'll change everyone's life. But it's very, very offensive because it blows up every man-made work. And that's why Jesus bothers people. He says, come empty and you can come in. But you can't come in unless you come empty, and that bothers the crowds. And so if you and I live this out, if we preach this out, then he says, hey, happy are you because they're going to hate you. That's how this is going to go down, and we're going to unpack a little bit more next week about this persecution. So let me ask you this question. Does this all sound strange to hear that happiness comes through selflessness like that? It's okay. The answer is yes. It does sound strange. Because our flesh is so inclined to not feel this way. We are so wired the other way. But this is amazing. It is true. It is so true. God has actually designed us to find fulfillment and joy only. Now listen very carefully. Only when we stop living for ourselves. Think about it. The natural pursuit of man's heart has always been his own satisfaction. God has said, here's where you'll find it when you don't think about your own satisfaction, you. When you go away, you'll find it. And tell me this, if you've lived any amount of time in your life at all, you've tried it every other way. All of us have. We've looked for joy and happiness. We're programmed to want it. That's what we do. And it doesn't work, does it? There might be little moments, like slivers of, that was, uh-oh, uh-oh. I have a lot of those. Like, what was I thinking? But this is reality. Happiness 
doesn't come the way the world says it comes or how our instincts are inclined to think. Happiness comes when you're broken. Happiness comes when you think about this delayed gratification of what God is doing over time. And happiness comes when you think more about others than yourself. So let me finish quickly addressing two groups of people. If you're here and you would say of your own heart, I don't trust and follow Jesus. I love you and I'm so glad you're here. God's doing a work. I know he is. There's no, there's no um, surprise that God has brought you to hear the very words of the creator, savior of the universe. But if you could be honest for two seconds, you know that that constant nagging desire for your own joy and the frustration of never, ever getting it should leave you with the question, maybe, maybe the king has something to say. Maybe turning this whole thing upside down. Maybe it comes through me being small and me being broken and me being selfless. Maybe it comes by not getting everything right now. Maybe he's doing the work over time. Maybe it's about his glory and my good. Maybe, maybe this is a different thing. And if it is, if, if God is starting to crack the door of your heart a little bit, come back, come back, because we're going to unpack this wonderful good news that you can have the ultimate joy through Christ by faith. But this other group, okay, is probably the majority of you because I'm seeing all your bright, shiny faces looking at me right now. You would say you're a Christian. And you know, you know the confession, you know the whole experience, you know the work, the, ma- the unbelievable transformative work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You've got evidence of it. There's another problem with us, though. There's a gobload of problems, but this one is true. We are so selective with the words of Jesus, Right? Right? Like, could, could you imagine if every person in here lived all of this perfectly? Man, the, the world would be changed just by this room. There is a selective hearing and a selective obedience when it comes to the instruction of the king. All I'm asking you to do, church, if you call yourself the church, come back for the next 13 weeks and make yourself a promise that whatever Jesus touches, Jesus gets. Good? All right, all right, let's pray, and you guys are dismissed. God, I do ask for your help, that you can uh, sift us, and you can work on our lives, and you can take the things that, that we have confused and messed up and make it right. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you that you're saving people, even as we speak. Uh, we love you. We love, we love Jesus and the work that he's done, but also the fact that he is here for our ultimate, ultimate joy. God, let us believe his words, these eternal words. In Jesus' name, amen.